I'll pick up that mic later. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. Right? It's the cliche thing to do. New year, Genesis, right? So I held off for about a month just to be different. But what we get in Genesis is an overview of what the rest of the Bible is addressing. If you're going to understand what the Bible teaches, it's going to have to begin in Genesis. Because in Genesis, we find all that God intends for us to know as he unfolds this story of what he's doing in his creation. And so this morning, out of Genesis 1 and into Genesis 2, I want to point you uh, to one of the uh, primary things that we see, and that is a God who brings cosmos out of chaos. A God who brings cosmos out of chaos. And I want to break that down for you this morning as we read. So I'm going to read to you this morning from Genesis chapter 1. And I'm only going to read the first couple of verses, but we're going to expound on the whole chapter. So I'm going to ask you one more time as part of church aerobics to stand up with me if you're willing to. As we read these first two verses... And then as we begin to look at how God has revealed himself in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we study this morning, I pray you will show us clearly your beauty, your majesty, and God, that we would stand in awe of who you are. Father, help us to understand this morning what you intend to communicate about yourself. Lord, teach us as only you can. Feed us as your sheep and point us to the beauty of Jesus Christ. We ask you to do all this so that you might receive more glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated for just a few moments. In the beginning, this is actually the title of the book. In the original Hebrew, the title is In the Beginning. Um, And so from the very foundation, God is showing us where all things came from and how he relates to all that he has made. And so this morning, what I want to focus in on is this idea that God has created cosmos out of the chaos. In order for us to understand Genesis rightly, we need to understand how it's constructed. And so in Genesis, what you see is Genesis is divided up into two major sections. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 teach you about uh, prehistory. What took place prehistory? And so chapters 1 through 11 is focusing on God and the world he has created. Then in in chapter 12, through the rest of Genesis, the focus shifts from the world to a particular family and how God relates to that family. So chapters 1 through 11 deal with the world in general. Chapters 12 through 50 deal with God's interactions with Abraham's family. And so that helps you to kind of structure it in your mind. 
But in Genesis 1 and 2, we actually see the focus on the creative work of God, what God did to bring about all things. And I'm going to focus our attention this morning specifically on Genesis chapter 1. I'd hate to break your heart, but I'm not going to spend time this morning dealing with all the various theories and ideas surrounding uh, these verses. Just so you know, we have a small group meeting tonight at Miss Linda McClure's house at 5 o'clock. And in that small group, we just so happened, right, just so happened to decide that we're going to do an overview of the entire Bible as a small group. Over the next few weeks, we're going to do an overview of what the Bible teaches as a whole. Well, guess where we start in the overview? Creation. It is the first step in God's plan and in his story. And so tonight at five o'clock at Miss Linda McClure's house, we will have the opportunity to talk through some of the, the, the meteor stuff as, as in different theories and different ideas behind creation. But this morning, I'm not gonna dive into that. I'm simply going to point out to you, I think four key things that we find in Genesis chapter one. Remember, most theologians hold that Genesis, along with the other, first five, you know, the other four books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. Most theologians believe that's the case. In fact, many believe that Genesis itself and the creation account may have been written around the time of the wandering in the wilderness, which to me makes some sense, but I'll let you decide on that yourself. But Moses was writing an account of God's work so that the Israelites might be reminded of the God that they are serving and following. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see the very beginning of God's work. So I want to point out four things to you this morning. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to ask you to jot these down because these are what I'm going to refer to. And we're going to move through them pretty quickly. We're not going to deal with a lot of the uh, extra details. We're going to kind of do an overview of this. Number one, I want to point out to you that Genesis 1 and 2 shows us that God reveals himself as the creator. God reveals himself as the creator. In these opening verses, there is no way you can avoid the idea of what you see in verse 1 and 2. We're told in verse 1, in the beginning, that means the beginning of everything, in the beginning, God created. Now, just so you know, in the midst of the culture they were living in, just this verse alone is very controversial because they are living and existing among cultures at the time that certainly did not hold to this idea. Because I want you to notice in verse 1, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth. For all you language scholars out there, the term used for God here is in the plural. Uh-oh. Sounds like we're walking down the same path as all the other ancient Eastern uh, cultures, right? Because there's many stories from other cultures about creation and, in fact, about a flood. But one thing that stands out about this account is that this creation is brought about by God, notice plural, and yet this God created singular. Something doesn't match. For, sing, for, for single nouns, we have single verbs. For plural nouns, we have plural verbs. Here we have a plural noun, singular verb. What is God teaching us about himself? That he would refer to himself in the plural, but when it came to action, it was singular. 
To me, it's God from the very beginning displaying his majesty, how great he is, right? He is Elohim. He is the God. And he is the God who created, notice what he created, heaven and earth. That's a biblical way of saying everything. There is nothing that stands outside of his creation. Now, what does this teach us about God, right? Because God is revealing himself in the way he's sharing this. What is God sharing about himself that he is the creator? Well, it helps us to see, and the rest of scripture will back this up. It helps us to see that God existed before creation. If he's able to create everything, that means he existed before before everything else existed. Does that make sense? So it's it's speaking to us about the eternality of God. This would stand in contrast to all the other cultures of the day. He's majestic, and because he's eternal, because everything was created by him, that means he stands above it all. See, I believe verse one is telling us that God created matter, space, and time. And because he created all those things, guess what he's not limited by? Any of them. And as such, he's displaying his majesty of the fact that he's not a created being, but in fact, he creates all things. By the way, the natural result of this idea that God is the creator should be very humbling for human beings. Because we like to think ourselves God-like. And I think the same question God would ask of us that he asked of Job, where were you when I formed the mountains? Right? So from the very beginning, guess what we're given? Big view of God, little view of us. But but not that we're worthless, but we're going to get there. But I want you to notice from the very first verse... We see the bigness of this God, that he is the creator. He stands above it all. And because of that, he's not limited by any of it. And what God actually does in these verses is he brings cosmos out of chaos. And I want you to see that in the next part. He says in verse 2, the earth was without form and void. So the earth God created was without form and void. Very interesting that in the original language, these words rhyme almost like a dance between them, that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. So not only do we see God creating, but we see him doing something with his creation. And I believe this forms the structure of what Genesis 1 is going to share with us. Those two words, without form and void, sum up for us what the Genesis account is going to teach us. And that is, Days one through three of creation address the without form part, and and days four, five, and six address the void part. And I want to break that down for you as best I can. But right off the jump, I want you to see that from the very beginning in these verses, we see that there is a creator, God, and he reveals himself as such. Number two. Not only does God reveal himself as the creator, but he also reveals his sovereign control over all creation. He's not just the one who brings it into being. He has sovereign control over his creation. That's a big deal. Because 
a deist would tell you that God created everything but then stepped away and he has no activity involved in his creation. That's not what we see here. We see the fact that God creates out of nothing and then he forms and shapes that which he creates. What does he do? He brings cosmos out of chaos. What is without form and void, he provides form and he fills. That's what the days of Genesis teach us. But I want you to note the words used to describe this chaos that existed. There are seven words that describe chaos before God begins to shape. We see it in verse 1, without form, void, darkness, the deep, the waters. In verse 10, we see seas. In verse 21, we see great sea creatures, this idea of chaos that exists. And what God does is he forms and he fills all that he has made. And the days of creation line that out. Day one, you see light and dark. Day two, you see sea and sky. Day three, you see fertile earth. Arise. So what is God doing? He's taking that which was without form and he's beginning to form it. Darkness, light, sky, seas, earth. All of it is to bring a form to that which did not have form. But then he's not just going to do that. He's not just going to form it. He's also going to fill it. So day four, what does he do? Sun, moon, and stars. To fill what? The heavens. Day five, water and air creatures to fill what? The skies and the seas. Day six, land creatures. Do you see how they relate? What he forms in day one, he fills in day four. What he forms in day five, he fills. I mean, what he forms in day two, he fills in day five. And what he forms in day three, he, feel, he fills in day six. Do you see that? They match up. That's intentional. I believe God is showing that he is bringing order and cosmos out of what had been without form and void. What is he displaying in that? He has sovereign control over all creation. Now, this is scandalous stuff. You know why this is scandalous? What did all the other cultures believe about creation? Their gods created it, multiple, right? And not only that, but they also believed that these creations were to be worshipped too. You've got sun worship, don't you? That's why we have the day Sunday. <gasps> Did y'all know that? We have moon worship. Know how we have the day, the day Monday? Uh-oh. See what happened? All other cultures took creation, and guess what they did to it? They worshiped it. Well, guess what the author, guess what I believe Moses writes down for us? God created everything, and he has control of it all. So why would you bow down to a sun god when you have God who made the sun? See what I'm getting at? Why would you bow down to the moon god when God made the moon. See, what, what's being stated in Genesis 1 is that there is only one God. He created everything, and he alone deserves worship. Does that make sense? Why does he deserve worship? 
because he controls it all. Even the things they thought could not be controlled. You know one of the biggest things they thought you could not control? Water. Seas were chaos, weren't they? They were out of control. No one could control the waters and the seas. Guess what God does? He not only controls it, he shapes it where he wants it to go. Just so you know, when Jesus shows up on the scene and starts calming waters, guess what he's displaying? I'm God. Remember Genesis 1? Jesus is saying, I did that. You see what I'm getting at? So what happens in Genesis 1 and 2 is actually setting you up for Jesus. Because everything Jesus displays is that he also does this. You with me? But this is foundational to everything the Bible is going to share. Because if you don't believe this, the rest of it won't make sense. You with me so far? I need you to nod yes. Otherwise, I'm going to stay on this point for three hours. <laughs> I have to make sure you get this. God creates, but he exercises his control over all of creation by forming and filling it. And again, he shows that he's active in creation. He's not distant from it. He's active in the work that happens on the earth. He is not distant from it. And just so you know, he alone deserves praise because he alone controls all things. And just so you know, we can become guilty as human beings of falling back into worshiping the creation rather than the creator. It's something we even as Christians have to battle. Falling in love with what God has made instead of falling in love with him who made it. Does that make sense? So this is to help guard us and to remind us there's only one who deserves praise and it's the one who created all things. Don't worship the sun don't worship the moon. Don't worship this earth. Worship God who made all of it. You with me? Because you said amen, we're going to move to the next point. Number three. Not only does God reveal himself as creator, not only does he reveal himself and his sovereign control over all of creation, but he also demonstrates for us that humankind is the crown of his creation. See, we talked about the fact that Genesis 1 starts us with a big view of God and a small view of us. But I don't want you to take that to mean that we're worthless, that we're not important. We are. You know how we know that humankind is important? Because of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that after God had formed and after God had filled, the last crown of his creation was to make human beings. And we're told that human beings are made differently than the rest of all creation. I'm going to ask you to fast forward to Genesis 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. What do we learn about human beings in relation to the rest of creation? They are special. And human beings are lovingly, personally, and uniquely created by God. And what sets them apart from the rest of creation is that they are made in God's image. This causes them to be different. They are image bearers of God. Actually, even the phrasing of how they come about is different. Because all of a sudden in verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image. 
Whereas before, in previous verses, we saw that there were phrases like, let the earth bring forth. So guess what we see? The personal, unique creation of God, and that is his people. And we're told that human beings are made in the image of God. This means that while we are not the center of attention, we are valuable to God. And we're valuable because God has made every human being to be an image bearer of him. What does that mean? What does it mean that we are the crown of his creation in that we are image bearers? Well, notice that from the verses we see here that we're made in the image of God, which means that we are to reflect the character of God. God created us as image bearers to reflect his character throughout the world that we would display God's greatness here in this world that he has given us to live in. So not only are we to be reflections of God, though, and his character, we are called also to be representatives of his loving rule. Because notice what he intends for human beings to do as they live. Let them have dominion, he says in verse 26, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Human beings were created to reflect God's character, and they reflect God's character in part by ruling as representatives of him on the earth. And notice he blesses them and then calls them to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. What is that? Make more image bearers. To fill God's earth, his world, with more image bearers reflecting him. So what does this mean for us today? If verse 26 is telling us that God created us, and he not only created us, but created us in his image, what does that mean for us as we relate to him? Well, it means that we belong to him. Whether we realize it or accept it, we belong to God. Why? He made us and we are after his image. So what this means is that we as, hum as human beings, we are accountable to God because he owns us. That's a scary thought for some. The idea that we stand accountable to God because he made us in his image, but it is no less the truth. And it's going to be a foundational truth before we get to Genesis 3 and we see how Adam and Eve respond to God. But right off the jump, Genesis chapter 1 teaches us that humankind is the crown of God's creation. We are created to reflect and represent him in this world. And because of that, we have great value as human beings. We are worth something to our God. And then finally, number four, not only has God revealed himself as the creator, not only has God shown his sovereign control over all of creation... Not only is humankind the crown of God's creative work, but God also reveals himself as the redeemer. I know you don't think of that when you think of Genesis 1 and 2, that God is displaying that he is the redeemer, but it's no less true. Notice, when you get into chapter 2, the first three verses of chapter 2 kind of tie up chapter 1 before moving into a more detailed account of day 6, the creation of man. But at the very beginning of chapter 2, let's read that together. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. 
And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So at the end of day seven, remember all the other days before, we're told that they ended. How did we know when each day ended? What did the text tell us to help us see that the next day was beginning? There was evening and there was morning. Guess what on day seven? There's no evening, no morning. What is God teaching about day seven? It's still going. It hasn't ended. Well, what is day seven pointing us to? That God rested, blessed, and sanctified his creation. Now, it's important for us to understand that. Those three words tell us how God views what he's done. Number one, we're told that he rested. That is the Hebrew word for Sabbath, which, by the way, God is demonstrating something for us because that word is going to be used in other places to refer to how we are to Sabbath. We're told God rested. But no, I want you to know, God doesn't rest because he's exhausted. God doesn't rest because he's weary. God creates quite easily. How does God create? He says it, and it happens. So he doesn't have to take a breather. He doesn't have to, well, man, that was rough. I got to take a few days off. He doesn't rest because he's weary or because he's exhausted. But the word rest can also mean, and I believe rightly means here in this context, it's indicating that God had completed his creative work, and that God was satisfied in the accomplishment of his creation. See, that idea of satisfaction, I think, is very, very important. Day seven is showing that God had completed his created work, and he was satisfied with it. Later on, when we're told in the New Testament that believers are to Sabbath as well, guess what it means for us? When we Sabbath, when we rest, Guess what? We are declaring and demonstrating that we are satisfied with our God. You understand what I'm getting at? That rest has the picture of satisfaction and completion. Here, God rests, blesses, and sanctifies. Notice that God blesses his creation. This is good news because creation wasn't just for God. God was making it for us. So guess what he does with the creation he's made? He blesses it for our benefit. That it would be a blessing for us, that it would be something where we could thrive and we could demonstrate his character and his rule in as image bearers. And so God blessed his creation. And then we're told that he sanctified it or made it holy. Why does this matter? In the rest of the Old Testament, what is the center of God's presence on the earth? That's true, but that's more of a New Testament. In the Old Testament, what represented God's presence? Temple, right? Guess what the temple was? It was a set-apart, sanctified. Why? Because that's where God was going to dwell 
with his people. Guess at the end of creation account, guess what God says about his creation? He sanctifies it. It's almost as if God is in the process of making creation the place where not only we would dwell, but the place where he would dwell with his people. Correct? New heaven, new earth. Guess what's not in new heaven, new earth? Temple. Guess what else isn't there? Sun. You know why? Because creation is pointing us to the idea that God is preparing a place not only for us to dwell, but for him to dwell with us. And because of that, it must be sanctified. But then something happens in Genesis 3. What happens to creation? It becomes defiled because of the sin of humanity. And guess what the rest of the Bible is about? God putting back and restoring that which he intended. Guess where it all starts? Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God is creating a place where not only we can dwell, but he will dwell with us. And so even in Genesis 1 and into chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, guess what we see about God? He is redeeming or he is putting back and making cosmos out of chaos. Now, how might that point us to Jesus? Because Christ, the Son of God, is the one who by his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is accomplishing that which God started in Genesis chapter 1. And in fact, the author of Hebrews tells us that the same Jesus who comes and dies on the cross to restore is the same Jesus who originally in Genesis chapter 1 created all things. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus was the agent of creation. It was through Christ that all things came into being. So even Genesis chapter 1 is pointing us to a redeemer, one who would put back and make right all that God had created and it started from the very beginning and it culminates in Revelation chapter 22, new heaven, new earth for the glory of God. But we have to realize from the very outset of the Bible that God is the creator and he is the only one. And because of that, he alone deserves your worship, no other. Number two, he is sovereign over his creation. He has all power to do with it what he pleases. And he does just that. Number three, we as human beings are the crown of his creation. We are made specifically as image bearers of God. And because of that, we have great value. But we know from what the Bible teaches that we sin against God. And because of our sin, we have been separated from him. And as such, the same redeeming God at the beginning of Genesis is the same redeeming God bringing us back to himself throughout the pages of Scripture. All of Genesis 1 is to remind us of our desperate need for Jesus, who not only brought all things into being, but redeems it all for the glory of God. Does that make sense? Four things from Genesis 1 and 2. 
We're going to expound a lot on this as we go forward. But what I want you to see this morning more than anything is the bigness of this God and how he deserves your worship today. And you don't worship God by trying to be a good person or trying to show yourself to be great. We give worship to God by showing our complete dependence on him, not only in creating us the first time, but in recreating us after his own likeness through Jesus Christ. I'm going to petition every person in this room, you need to be rescued by Jesus Christ. There is no other hope because he alone is able to make right and restore that which was marred by sin. You need to trust in Jesus today. And Christians in the room, God alone deserves your worship and you need to worship him today. Not only for what he's made, but for who he is and how he's rescued us. This morning from Genesis chapter one, may you see the bigness of our God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you. I thank you for these opening verses. And God, I thank you that it displays for us your greatness. And Father, we need to be reminded of that. In a culture today that tries to make ourselves and make human beings into gods, Father, I thank you that your word begins by demonstrating that there is none like you. There is no one who stands as your equal. And Father, we give you praise today for that. We thank you for that. And Lord, I pray today that you would help us to see your glory. Father, I pray that we will see you as the only true wise king. Lord, I pray that you will help us to uh, glorify your name in all that we do and point other people to do the same. God, I'm grateful for your mighty working power, that you are the only creator. And because of that, you are the only one worthy of all praise. And Father, I thank you this morning that you are the one who has sovereign control over all your creation. God, we praise you for that. Lord, we thank you that you've made us in your image. Because of that, uh, God, you hold us as valuable. But God, we also thank you that you are the redeeming God. You're the one who takes those who have been marred and broken by sin and you make us new. We ask you to receive praise this morning. So Father, in this place, draw people to yourself and help us to see your beauty. Father, point us to Christ one more time. Maybe it's for the first time, Father. Draw people to yourself and rescue them. But God, also we pray that you will help us as Christians to pursue you and to make our boast Jesus alone. So Father, change hearts, change lives, and do it for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.